Moncrief on News Talk. Anyway, it's time for how to when we address the sorts of decisions we don't take every day. Today, it's how to give a speech. We're joined by Gina London, founder of Language and Leadership and a Sunday independent columnist. Afternoon, Gina. Good afternoon to you. So, I mean, the first thing, I suppose, if somebody would say you have to give a speech and if they're worried about it, if they've no experience about it, they're going to be utterly terrified. Yeah. So in the first instance, what can you do with a person who might come into you and do you give them quaaludes? What, what do you do to, to make them be able <laughs> to be relatively calm? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, first of all, I help people prepare. I mean, I work with executives from all over the world. So, And I also work with emerging talent. So young people coming into business who haven't had the opportunity, maybe other than interviewing and having that be their speech, to get the job to actually prepare and present a speech. So the first thing I try to do is help people understand that it's not just for extroverts. It's not just a natural thing. It's something that anybody can learn if they get some proper preparation, some strategy, some structure, and then rehearse out loud. I think that's one of the top things. So let's talk about first that self-consciousness, that nerves around, I have to present. The first thing I try to tell people is think about the strategy and think less about yourself and more about the people you're going to be speaking to or talking with or presenting before. So the more other conscious you can be, the less self-conscious you will become as a result. So, so you're saying focus on all the, the those pairs of eyes, those hundreds of <laughs> pairs of eyes staring at me, no, judging me. No, focus on their hearts. Seriously, right. think about what they're not the demographics. That's the easy stuff. Are they your bosses? Are they other salespeople? Are they colleagues? Think about seriously their hopes, dreams and fears. What are they talking about around their water cooler? What's the top issue on their mind, according to all the information that you think you need to give? Lead with that first. I often have my clients write down an agenda or an outline of what they think they want to talk about first. And then I say, okay, now put that aside, take a different piece of paper or open a new Word doc and start writing the same topic, but from the perspective of your audience, what's on their mind? What are they concerned about? Lead with that. Throw that other agenda away. Starting to get structure is the first step to start to alleviate some of those nerves. Because if you're just staring at a blank screen or a piece of paper, yeah, of course you're going to feel overwhelmed because you're, like you're saying, jumping to that idea of what are they going to think of? Who are they? Well, first, start thinking about how you can have your words improve their lives. People want to have something that they can apply, something that they can do that makes a difference in their work life or in their personal life, which are often connected, that's going to help make things easier. So not just the what of your information, but the intent of what you want them to do and how that's going to have an aspirational why to make things better. So I like to break things down into three. So strategy, structure, delivery. Under strategy, I have AIM. A-I-M, audience, intent, message. Write that stuff down. It can take two minutes. Who are they? What are they thinking? What are the pictures in their head? What's the action then for the intent you want them to take? Then and only then, it's like an iterative process. People often want to lead with all the information first. But once you think about who they are, specifically narrowly defined what you want them to do with your information, not just to nod their head and go, oh, okay, what do you actually want them to do as soon as they walk out of that room? And then construct a message that supports that, again, with a bit of aspiration as to why it will make things better. 
they don't want to have their time be wasted. You don't want them to have their time be wasted. Once you start getting into that framework, it starts to make it more systematic and systems help alleviate nerves too. Mm. Okay, well, let's just say, for, as an example, yep. it's a wedding. You have yes. to give a speech at a wedding. You're the, you're the bride, you're the groom, you're the best man. And you stand up there and you go, there's Auntie Mary. She hates my guts <laughs> since the time I puked in her shoes three three years ago. You know, that, and so you, you're, you're aware of them. There might be family dynamics there, but you're trying to bring everybody on board. <laughs> What's the technique of, of getting them to listen to your words, but not seeing you, the figure that some of them hate? Well, that's a great question. And now we're moving from the business room into more of the family dynamic. And there's all sorts of layers to that. So in that situation, think about you're giving you're if you're at a wedding, you're thinking about the bride and the groom. What's going to lift them up? I know there's a lot of wedding speeches out there that have the gentle jabs that are put in and the little oh, humor. Or not so gentle goes, jabs. Yeah, well, that's it. Yeah. Sometimes it goes way too deep or way too off color. And people think, oh, that's funny. And I know Irish weddings, you've been drinking since like the week before and everybody's in a humorous mood. But words can also have lasting impact. So I would encourage people to try to take not boring safe road, but try to think of stories. Try to think of a couple of stories, have some humor, but also think about everybody else in the room so that you're not making the auntie hate you even more than she already does. Yes. So get some structure around a couple of stories. I certainly would encourage in that situation, if you have been having a few drinks, know when to end your speech because sometimes in those situations they can go on and on and everyone is losing the will to live. Yes. Oh, no, absolutely. Well, there's, well, there's also kind of, and I don't know if you must have people, clients, that you have to work with their sense of judgment in that, in that, and it's a cliche, but it does happen that the best man will think it's funny to to stand up and start talking about the groom's the, sex life. Correct. Uh, uh, when as in if, doubt, leave it out. Yeah. That's seriously, that's it. I mean, at what uh, you thought it was funny, it drives a wedge between the bride and the groom. It makes the, the mother of the groom or the mother of the bride feel uncomfortable. You know, is it worth it? Think about the repercussions of those types of things. I don't mean to be preachy about it, but you can have fun and you can take a couple gentle jabs. You can have a roast without frying someone. Yes, uh, except it's just, I don't know. Some people just don't know where the line is. Well, in that case, ask. In that case, you know, again, if you're writing in a vacuum in a situation where you're going to have a variety of different people in your audience, I'd encourage you to get a trusted friend or someone else who's not necessarily exactly like you. Yes, that's a good idea. your comedic judgment. (laughs) Get get that auntie. Hey, there's a way to bring that auntie closer to you. Ask her for a story about the bride or the groom. Mm. Have her contribute a little bit, and then you just brought her a little closer. But ask somebody for their opinion if you're feeling uncertain about a particular story or a particular joke. Somebody's already texted in to say, don't talk about the sex life of either the bride or groom. That should be the first rule. It ruined my wedding. See? When the best man talked about all my husband's past history. Yeah, not fun. Not Nuts. a good way to... It's not, it's not nice. Come on. What yeah. are we there for? We're there to celebrate in a wedding situation. We're there to have fun, but we're also there to, frankly, honour and hopefully get them on a right foot to start off Rather with. You don't br- want that for the rest of your... Them every off. anniversary you're, you're talking about that darn wedding speech. So, and, and, and while you're preparing the speech, are you telling a story in, this, in the sense that we should have a beginning, a middle and an end? Oh my gosh, yes. This is one thing in particular in... Well, in any situ, in any presentation or any speech or any eulogy, try to think. I try to often think about the structure of a circle. If you open 
with an illustration or an example, an easy formula, and formulas are there to help us, give us guideposts. An easy formula is to start with the opening of the story, maybe tease a little bit more of that same story towards the middle, and then resolve the story at the end or call back to the Mm -hmm. beginning as it ends. You've got a circular format. It helps make a nice package for your audience to recall the points within, and it also helps give you markers as to when you need to wrap up and remind you to wrap up. Because if you go on and on and on, if you haven't rehearsed, again, the last part that you are being le- that you are leaving with the audience is the part they remember. So try to finish strong, especially in a business setting. How many times I have heard clients before they came to me, and there's and a speech or a presentation with, well, that's all the time I have. Any questions? And it just takes all the air out of everything mm. that they were just presenting. So take a moment to slow down. Recap your main point, that call to action, that inspirational why once again, or that lovely memory of why we're there at that wedding or what's so important about the auntie who has now died and you're giving her lovely eulogy because she's asked you to give it because you become her favorite niece or nephew. And but, you're going to inherit everything. Yeah, That's why well, you're that here. That could be some rationale as to why, you know, why not, Sean? But, but yeah, an ending, of course, is really important. And concluding in a powerful, meaningful, memorable way is really important. So I certainly don't encourage anyone to necessarily memorize verbatim presentations, but I do encourage you to practice out loud so that you can hear your voice as a you would be presenting it. If you're going to project or if you're going to start off with a joke, don't just read it on your laptop or your tablet. Actually speak it out loud because the way we write is often different than the way we speak. Mm. So if you've written in a lofty way and then you start to deliver it and go, ah, that doesn't sound like me at all, change it. Also, when you're getting to the end, hear yourself go slow and low to kind of give what I call the applause cue, the trigger out to the audience that, okay, here's that final nugget, that wrap, that final meaningful passage at the end that's going to bring us all together. And it also gives us a cue that the tension of the presentation is about to be relieved and we can go back to whatever we're doing for the rest of the wedding or the rest of the conference. So so I'm again that that there's no matter what the circumstances, the, the end of the speech should maybe contain at least a degree of emotion to it. Oh, absolutely. You want to, again, you look, if you kind of get a little bit discombobulated in the middle, the ending is the opportunity for you to wrap it up nicely in a package and give it back to that audience. Again, as I said, every audience wants to feel that their time was not wasted. They were there with you in that eulogy or that wedding speech or that presentation, even a sales pitch that you were not wasting their time. So end on something that's meaningful to them. Take it back to them. Don't keep making it about you. Mm. Put it back to what can be improving in their situation, in your team, in your department, in your company. Even if it's a difficult conversation about a policy change that means more work or something that people aren't going to really want to to digest, if you can give them a little bit of aspiration about why in the long run this digital change transformation is going to make things better, it can at least help them on the on their get on their way. But if you don't have energy in your delivery when you're saying it, you might write the most inspirational words. If you don't practice out loud, like I said, and actually match your voice and your, if you're in person, especially we're on radio, but if you're 
body language doesn't look like you mean the words you're saying, mm. people feel that they disconnect with that right away. Yeah. And so getting that that balance among the content, the voice, and the body, I like to think about three legs of a stool. Most people spend a lot of time on the preparation of the content. And then they get into business speak and they get into yeah. monotone syllables and it's not very interesting. And if you're feeling that it sounds boring, believe me, everybody else is too. That's an interesting, actually, uh, a point on, on like if, if somebody in business comes into you and asks to do a presentation to their staff where essentially we're going to pay you less work, uh, less money to do more work. Everybody knows that's what the case is. Then when they go and say, we've given you an exciting opportunity, and they use what, a technical term, bullshit, to try and sell something <laughs> that's patently untrue, do you advise them not to do that? Well, I would certainly, well, this, look, transparency is key. You're not going to sell somebody a line about why we have to work harder and we're going to get less pay in an uplifting, inspirational music soundtrack way and have people buy it. That's where I would say, again, think about the audience's agenda. Lead with, hey, this is this is happening. Here's why. Mm. This is not going to be easy. If if you're not taking a pay cut, everybody else is too. That's also a problem. So you've got to have, yeah. you got to <laughs> darn walk that talk. That's a whole other I should level. do what, Gina? And I'm paying of, you for this advice? That's a whole other <laughs> bit of discussion. But in all seriousness, to try to match your tonality to the content requires you to be aware of the emotion behind the words. Mm. And a lot of times, again, people will write content and they'll deliver it all in the same tone which first of all is boring as i mentioned second of all it doesn't necessarily make the people feel that you believe it and especially in a virtual setting i have had clients say to me oh my gosh our cfo just did our financials town hall meeting and the whole time that he was talking we could see he was reading from a script he didn't have anything that he could look up at the camera to look like he was looking at us or in an in-person situation actually look like he was looking at us and had any compassion about these these figures that he was sharing. So naturally, people feel a disconnect. Yeah. So the power that can happen in a speech is really something that can be connected by someone who has care, compassion, a little bit of foresight. The good news is the bar is actually really low. Because the expectations of most people are like, well, this is going to be same old, same old. And if someone just goes off script a little bit and looks at the people or looks at the camera, if they hadn't before, that tiny detail can actually make a big difference. If people smile when it's appropriate, not when they're talking about no pay, but if people smile a little more when they are talking about something that's uplifting, that connection actually comes through more. And that's, again, why I think sometimes this stuff can feel performative and fake. But actually, if you're, again, digging into the who are those people, who are you trying to connect with, that requires you then to try to explore the range of how you deliver and bring a little more of what you probably do naturally when you're talking to your family and friends in a relaxed situation. But you just haven't experienced it and practiced it in what we'd call more of a formal situation. So I also encourage my clients to not, or anyone listening, don't think of a speech as a one-off. Think about your one-on-ones, the way you talk to your family, your spouse, your significant other, the way that you interact with the barista at the coffee shop. Think about all of those as opportunities to think. Am I actually paying attention to who they are? Am I looking like I care? Do do I care? Am I looking like I care? If you start to do that, you'll be, I think, surprised 
the way the feedback loops start to change if you take that first step. Mm. And that muscle memories you to be less nervous than when a big speech comes around because you're practicing some of these techniques when the heat's not on. Yeah. So it's easier for you when the heat is on. So I suppose for the for the person at the wedding who maybe isn't their day job doesn't entail this at all. Right. So would you recommend like obviously writing a speech, structuring it properly and and making it tasteful and all the rest of it? <laughs> uh, do you, should you memorize it word for word, or, or what's the way to learn, best way to learn that rather than muttering while you look well, at cue cards? In a situation like a like a wedding speech, where unless you're completely teetotaling, you probably have had a couple of drinks. You may not be memor- You may not be able to remember everything verbatim anyway. I don't think there's any harm in having something written if mm. you've practiced it enough out loud, where you can get off the paper and look out to the audience now and again. So even that requires you to practice holding the paper, looking down at it, looking up at the pretend audiences you're rehearsing. I think I'd rather have someone do that than try to go completely from memory. They get off track, they yeah. start to meander forever, <laughs> or they blank. And then you've been that uncomfortable feeling when someone's giving a speech and they go, oh, I completely lost my train of thought. And then now we're all feeling miserable. So if you... I would never say take your stabilizers or your training wheels off too soon because you don't want the bike to crash. Yeah. Eventually, you'll be able to, I think, be more comfortable and know your points and build transition lines through them. Let me read out three texts to you, more on, on more or less on the same theme. I once gave a speech and got so nervous my voice started to close up, so I took some water, which led me to choke on stage and had to exit the room Aww. to calm myself. It was a traumatic experience. Someone else wonders, how do you stop your voice shaking when you're speaking? Uh, someone else says, when it comes to body language, how do you hide or control the shakes? Okay, I've got, uh, let's do the first one. The, one of the easiest things, people often try to jump into the intro. They jump into the beginning of their speech. I encourage my clients because you're not necessarily accustomed. Even now, I still get nerves when I'm doing big presentations in front of thousands of thousands of people. And I think that's a good thing, actually, because it reminds us not to be complacent. So the first thing is pleasantries. Take a moment and just breathe and say, good morning. If it's afternoon, say, good afternoon. Great to see you all. Get yourself grounded and comfortable with how you're standing and how you're looking out to the audience before you jump into the actual content. That's mm. one. Here's a great one. It, you can visualize me right now with my thumb from one hand pushing like an acupuncture point into the palm of my other hand. This is actually a neuroscience focus technique that... Dis, that will help you focus when you're feeling nerves. It will, happily, happily, it will happily remind you to calm your face, to look poised, to help you reduce some of that shaking because you're you're putting you're displacing some of the nerves into that pressure point into your palm, and then you can turn your hand around and nobody knows that you're doing it. And mm. I actually learned that from Bill Clinton, and that's the only thing he taught me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nice save, Gina. Uh, <laughs> but also, like, in terms of one's stance, because it sometimes there's a habit to try and make yourself small, to, yes. to, to shrink in, and, you know, a, a more expansive gestures, keep your body kind of open. Right. So, so, for example, if you're presenting and you're not holding a microphone or a clicker or, or a page, I encourage people to take their hands like a gentle clasp and put them just in a relaxed way right around by your belly button. Not too low because we don't need to draw attention to that region and not too high because you look like you're singing in a choir. But just right in a relaxed way. And then when you need to bring your, bring your hands out, you can bring them out from the center and then bring them back in. For posture, I encourage people, this is obviously in, in person and not virtual, but 
if you're standing. And I do encourage people virtually, if you can set up your laptop and your Zoom room so it looks like so that you're standing, that actually gives you a little more more comfort, a little more Mm. credibility. When you're standing, I encourage people to plant their feet and move their body even sort of like a compass from side to side or towards the middle to their audience rather than walking quickly back and forth across the stage so that you look like a little duck in a shooting gallery. That gets distracting really quick. (laughs) And the idea here is to (laughs) augment what you're saying, not to distract from what you're saying. Yes. Okay, fair (laughs) enough. And uh, someone else says... uh, uh, Gina should give Trump some uh, of uh, these tips on his speech last night. My word, he doesn't know how to speak pu- publicly at all. The key, Rambly McRambler. The key to anybody that you coach is that they have to have desire to make adjustments. They have to have awareness of how they come across. And so I think that would make that a foregone conclusion that I couldn't help him. And he doesn't need to learn because it's just always full of the rooms, always full of people going, yeah, you're right. It's all a big <laughs> When you plot. have a room of sycophants, you don't need to be thinking yeah. any of this advice. Uh, in the, uh, because and we have spoken about these American politics before. What, what, what do you make of what's going on? Is there, like, I saw, I read a piece in the Irish Times from Michael McDool saying that this is kind of a distraction and it's probably the least serious charge that's up against it. Right, but it's, okay, now that when I, I thought, when your researcher called me, I said, oh, we're talking about Trump. And she <laughs> says, no, we're talking about speech giving. But no, here we are talking about Trump. And as the former CNNer that I am, the uh, this is the first domino. So yes, it's a distraction, but it's an it's one of an ongoing number of charges that are coming forward. We've got the Department of Justice have two big federal issues going on with the classified document situation, and also, of course, the January sixth. The biggest one I would keep my eyes out though for is the situation with the with the state secretary that Trump called right in 2020 mm. to try to find those missing 11,000 votes plus that he described. And that case in Georgia, I think, has a lot of potential. But again, will enough Republican base MAGA's never going to change? They're not that he can do anything. Will enough swing voters, enough independents, and not to mention the polls, say 25 percent of Republicans right now, privately, if not publicly, are never Trumpers. So it's not enough. The, all of this distraction is not enough to get him across the line to become president in 2024. That's my prediction. There you have it. There you go. Gina, thanks uh, a million for coming into us. Uh, Gina London there. Moncrief, weekdays at 2 p.m. on News Talk.